Well, good morning. Um, it's great to be here. Um, I uh, aim to warm you up slightly, uh, ready for a bit more singing uh, in a little while. Uh, we are now in week five of our series, uh, which we're calling uh, Prayer Equals Life. Uh, now, I think if we're being completely honest, uh, the last thing a lot of us want to hear is yet another sermon uh, on the whole subject of prayer. It's like we already know we should be praying and we don't want to be made to feel bad for not praying more than we do. And so bearing all of that in mind, here's what we're trying to do with this series. Instead of talking about where we're all lacking with our praying, uh, what we're trying to do is look at the sheer potential of prayer. If you like, we're, we're taking a look at what can happen as a result of praying so that hopefully we might be a little more inspired to take God up on his absolutely stunning invitation for us to engage with him in prayer. So far, we've eavesdropped on the prayers of Abraham, Jacob, Moses, Gideon. This week, we're going to take a look at the fascinating story of Hannah, who eventually becomes the mother of the prophet Samuel. Now, if you've ever found yourself in a situation where you are despairing of life, if you've ever perhaps been crippled with pain, if you've ever questioned why God has let you go through something or God hasn't answered your prayers the way you would like him to, then this story today is especially for you. If you want to follow along, the story is found in the first couple of chapters of 1 Samuel. I think we can break it down into three main sections, three main parts. First of all, there's Hannah's pain. Second, there's a pretty remarkable change in Hannah's heart. And then third, there's the secret that lies behind this change, which we're going to discover as we listen in to Hannah praying. I start by reading verses 4 to 8, where we're going to discover the source of Hannah's pain. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, his other wife, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her until she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? So straight out of the gate, here's a woman in enormous emotional turmoil. She's completely overcome with grief. The reason is that she is childless. She desperately wants to have children and she can't. Now if you know someone who wants to have children but they can't. Or maybe that's the situation you find yourself in right now. You don't need me to stand at the front here and tell you how incredibly painful this is. But this pain 
as real and as devastating as it can be at times, dreadful as it is, actually doesn't get anywhere close to the way childlessness was viewed back in Hannah's day. If you really want to understand something of her grief and something of her pain, you've got to get into the context. First of all, back then, in ancient societies, your family's whole economic status was directly related to how many children you had. didn't matter whether you were a farmer or a baker, a shoemaker or whatever. The more children you had, the bigger your labor force was because everything was done through families. And the more of a labor force you had, the more production you had, and so the more money you made. It was as simple as that. Lots of children, you did really very, very well. Very few children, you were very, very poor. Secondly, since only four out of ten children survived to adulthood back in those days, And since there was no such thing as the benefit system or pensions or anything like that, you literally starved to death in old age if you didn't have a lot of children to look after you. And so having a lot of children was key to both economic health and your future security. But not only that, if your tribe or your nation had a lower birth rate and some other tribe or some other nation had a higher birth rate, it was simple. Bigger army, smaller army, you lose. They they come and colonize you. They invade you. They wipe you out. And so when you and I today look at childlessness and somebody says, I wish I had children, we're, we're talking almost completely in that moment about I'll be emotionally fulfilled with a child this is different. We're talking here about life and death. We're we're talking about huge cultural pressures to have children or we die. And so having lots of children, it was a matter of life and death back then. The women who had a lot of children, they were celebrated by their family, by their tribe, by their nation. They were the real heroines in that culture. And those who had no children, they were considered totally worthless. Now, when you combine these enormous cultural pressures with the ordinary deep-rooted desires a woman might have for having children, you realize that back then in those cultures, women were essentially forced into an idolatry of family and children. Just to explain, basically an idol is a good thing that turns into, that becomes an ultimate thing. A good thing that you ought to enjoy becomes the very center of your life. You look at this thing and you say, because I have that, then I'm worthwhile. Because of that, I have meaning in my life. Instead of looking to God, you look to this thing for your salvation. It's like, if I have this thing, then everything's okay with me. Without this thing, there is no hope. And back in Hannah's time, women were essentially pushed by the culture into making an idol out of being a mother. It was like, you are absolutely nothing unless you have children and family. Now you might be thinking, that sounds awful. Thank goodness we don't live in an oppressive culture like that. But the reality is, 
There is no such thing as an unoppressive culture. Every single culture puts certain things in front of people, things that aren't God, and says you have to have that or you're nothing. You have to have that or you have no worth. You have to have that or you don't even have a self. You have to have that and whatever that is, if you accept what the culture says, it will drive you into the ground. If you build your whole life on having children, then you'll end up crushing your children with your expectations of how they are going to make you happy. If you build your whole life on romance and love, oh, somebody loves me at last. That's how I know that I'm okay. Over time, you will end up crushing that person under the weight of your expectations. Anything that person does wrong, it will just eat away at you. It will destroy you. If you build your life on money and achievement, whatever, it, it doesn't matter. There is no such thing as an unoppressive culture. Really, the only way to escape the idle system of your particular culture is by having God... And his love, more important to you than anything else. So that's the source of Hannah's pain. A natural desire, a good desire to have a child has become an idolatrous thing. It has led to a distorted self-image. And the other wife of her husband, this lady called Panina, is absolutely rubbing her nose in it. Now, just by way of an aside... There are some pretty broken family dynamics going on in this story. Even though Panina has got children, she's not happy because Elkanah, her husband, says to his other wife, Hannah, I love you best. That's why I'm giving you this extra portion of food. I love you more. Understandably, that's incredibly painful for Panina to hear. And she responds by taking Hannah to one side and doing everything she can to rub Hannah's face in the fact of her childlessness. And so Elkanah, by favoring Hannah, destroys his other wife's heart, who then turns and makes Hannah miserable. So moving on. Secondly, how does Hannah escape from this dreadful situation? What happens next to change Hannah's heart? Well, it starts by her refusing to put her trust in the two very different routes to salvation that are being held out by these two main characters in the story, Panina and Elkanah. Look at what they're offering her. Panina, first of all, represents the hope of her society that says, build your whole identity on having children. That's why she says, I have children, you don't, so I matter and you're worthless. It's a trap, of course, but that's what's being held out. That's the hope that's being offered. Elkanah, on the other hand, very well-meaningly comes and says to Hannah that I love you. Surely that should be more important than having children. My love as a husband he actually represents what individualistic modern societies like ours tend to hold out as hope to women. They say, oh, don't build your identity on having children. Build your identity on being attractive, on romance, having someone love you. Hannah's been presented 
with two very different kinds of hope here. Here's build your whole life on children. Here's build your whole life on romantic love. And Hannah will have none of it. Verse 9, once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. More literal translation would be, she arose. That word arose in Hebrew narrative doesn't just simply mean, well, she just got up at the end of the meal. That means she took action. To arise means, I'm going to do something about this. To arise means, I'm going to stop being passive. Verse 10, in her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. It's like, by arising and going to pray to God, she was rejecting the idols that were being offered to her. She was shutting her mind off, closing her ears to those things. Now don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with having children, certainly nothing wrong with having a loving husband, not dissing that either. But she realized that if these things were what she was living for, If these were the things that she was looking to get her security, her worth, her significance from, then they were ultimately traps to her. She recognized that they were good things that were being offered to her as ultimate things. If you like, they were forms of slavery. And she arose and rejected them and went to God in prayer. Verse 11, and she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, that means he's all-powerful, He's all controlling. He's all sovereign over everything. She's remembering something of the transcendence and the greatness of God. And she says, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant. Now Hannah's making a huge assumption here about God. She's assuming that the broken heart of a solitary, obscure woman matters to this Lord to whom even the galaxies are nothing but dust in his hands. She's meditating on the fact that God is both infinitely great, yet infinitely tender. She's remembering who God is. She's taking the deepest needs of her heart and she's pouring them out in the reality of who she knows God to be. You know, a lot of people in our culture would say, here's what you do with your deepest emotions. You hide them or you deny them. This is what the Bible says you do with your deepest emotions. You pour them out to God. You process your deepest emotions in light of who God is. You reflect and you think and you say, if God is this and if God is this, if if God is like that, you bring your emotions out. And over time, that's what changes them. I mean, look at the change that takes place in Hannah. Look at what she prays next. Don't forget your servant, but give her a son. Then... I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. Now, let me just interpret what's going on here because it sounds like it's so slightly strange. She's basically saying, if you will give me a son, I will give him to you in full-time ministry. Now again, you might be thinking, well, even the interpretation sounds a bit odd or even slightly manipulative. But again, You need to understand a bit about the context if you're going to grasp 
just how profound what Hannah's saying here really is. You see, back in those days, if you wanted to go into ministry, you had to be a Levite. You had to be from the tribe of a guy called Levi. But if you weren't from the tribe of Levi, if you weren't a Levite, if you were from another tribe and you wanted to go into full-time ministry serving the Lord, you, you had to become a Nazarite. In number six, if you're interested, it lays it all out. I'm not going to go there right now. I'm just going to give you the abridged version. Basically, to become a Nazarite, you had to live in the tabernacle from the time you were a small child and be raised there as a kind of full-time assistant to the priest. And two of the distinguishing marks of being a Nazarite were that you couldn't drink strong drink and you could never cut your hair. Uh, Hasn't got a whole lot going for it, really. Uh, But those were your two markers. Now think about it, bearing that in mind. Do you see what Hannah's doing here? A Nazarite child is of no help whatsoever to the economy of the family. I mean, they're not going to make any contribution whatsoever to the family business. Second, a Nazarite child cannot take care of you in old age because they're away from the family serving God somewhere completely different. Thirdly, not only that, a Nazarite child doesn't even give you any emotional support. When all the other women are kind of walking around with their young children, your child isn't going to be with you. You're not even going to get to raise your child. He's going to be away. I mean, really away. This was back in the ancient times when there were no such things as mobile phones. There was no such thing as the internet. Nothing. In other words... Of all the cultural and emotional motivations for having a child, they were gone. So why does Hannah still want a child? Why go through the pain of that and then give the thing away? Well, for Israelite women, there was a cultural reason to have children. We've looked at that. The cultural reason was status. There's also an emotional reason for having children. Emotional reason was a feeling of power, feeling of worth. There's also a theological reason. When God said, way back in the beginning to Abraham in Genesis 12, I'm going to save the world through your family. Someday, through your descendants, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. The Israelites heard that, but didn't really know what he was talking about. All they knew was that somehow God was going to do something great through their community. But you know what that meant? All Israelite women realized that when they bore a child then in some way they were participating with God in the salvation of the world. Of course, that's not the main reason. I mean, you can see the way Panina looked at it. It was actually all about her. She wasn't thinking theological reasons. But Hannah has taken that theological reason and made it the very center. Do you know what she's saying? She's saying to God, all my life I've wanted a child for me. But now... I want a child for you. I want a child who has been caught up in your mission in the world. It's like before when the main reason she wanted a child were the cultural and the emotional. God was the means and having a child was the ultimate end. Having the child was what would give her meaning and worth and happiness. But now God and his mission is the end goal. And the child, whether she gets one or not, is just the means of further advancing God's mission in the world. Do you see how she shifted her hope? She's shifted 
her self-image. She's shifted the center of her life from having a child, I must have a child, to being a part of God's mission in the world. You say, how do you know that? I mean, aren't you just kind of manipulating the passage a bit? Uh, Aren't you just reading too much into all of this? No, I'm not, funny enough. (laughs) And I'll prove it to you. A little further down in the passage, here's what happened when she... I wasn't just coming under conviction then. (laughs) I'm going to show you a little further down in the passage. Here's what happened when she finished praying. Verse 18, then she went her way and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning, she arose and worshipped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah and the Lord remembered her. And so in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel saying, because I asked the Lord for him. Now did you hear that? This is what it didn't say. It didn't say she prayed, the Lord remembered her, she got pregnant, and then she got happy. Then she started worshipping. Then she got inner peace. Then she started to eat. Then she stopped being so downcast. didn't say she prayed, she got pregnant, she got happy. What it said was she prayed and she worshipped and got happy even though she had no idea she was going to get pregnant. Why? Because she'd been liberated from the cultural idol system. She had shifted her hope to the mission of God. And having a child was suddenly a means to an end, not an end in itself. By the way, this isn't just a message for people who want to have children. You financial types, you business people, Do you want to add value? This is real value. The mission of God in the world. You artistic types. Do you want to bring beauty into the world? This is the real beauty. This is the ultimate beauty. Do you see that? Mothers, do you want to bring life into the world? This is the real life. Listen, by turning God into the center, now making money is merely a means to an end. Now doing art is merely a means to an end. Now having children is merely a means to an end. Not an end in itself. Not a way of getting a self. Not a way of getting significance and worth and security. Now you're set free from all of that. You know, more than anything else, my prayer today is that God would set some of you free It might be from the need to be popular. It might be from the fear of what people think of you. God's wanting to set you free from needing the approval of others. He wants you today to receive his approval and for you then to be free to be the person he's created you to be. You know, some of you, you're driven in life. Maybe you're driven at school. Parents, I wish I wish my child was driven at school. Maybe you are driven secretly. You've duped your parents, but you are driven, driven to succeed at school or at college or maybe at work, maybe in your career, to somehow prove your worth or not to bring shame on your family. 
And God wants to set you free from that. You have nothing to prove. He wants you to receive acceptance and worth, identity in him, and then be set free to honor him in your education, to honor him at school, at college, in your workplace. But it's your worship to him, not your means of trying to get identity. Others of you, it's like you dislike the way God's made you. You, you, you hate the way you look. Kind of wish your body was different in some way. Today, God's calling you to surrender to him. Say, God, I acknowledge that you knit me together in my mother's womb. I acknowledge that I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And this is my worship to you, accepting the way you've made me, not despising myself, not trying to fit in with how this culture says I should look, being secure in who you've made me. And that's my worship to you. And then freedom comes. Maybe this story is particularly pertinent, painful for you. You wish you had children. <laughs> Maybe a step back from that. You, you wish that you weren't single. You wish you were married. Again, God wants to set you free. He wants you to see that that's not the ultimate goal in life. Have a great your husband or wife may be. Have a great having kids may be. Yeah, they're gifts from God. But actually, that's not going to meet your greatest need. You won't get the security you're looking for from them. In fact, if you're looking for it from them, you'll end up crushing them. You'll end up being bitterly disappointed by them. God would say to you, make your primary aim, your primary devotion, seeking the heart of God, pursuing the heart of God, worshipping him and then he may give you what you're looking for he or that may never happen but ultimately you have the greatest meaning you have the greatest worth in him returning to the story of Hannah she did end up with a son named him Samuel he grew up to become one of the greatest deliverers of God's people who foreshadowed the great Messiah to come he rose up at a time of great crisis in the nation. He led his people to victory over their enemies. And in a very real sense, he saved them. Now here's the thing. If Hannah hadn't suffered, if God had just given her a child when she wanted a child, she would have crushed him under the weight of her expectations. Or she would have dangled him in front of Panina and said, see, I am okay. I'm all right. I'm a real woman. I had a son. And he never would have become the saviour that he did, would he? Never. In fact, he would have needed somebody else to save him from his mother. But because of Hannah's suffering and because of her sacrifice, salvation ended up coming to God's people. They were saved because she accepted not knowing how God was going to use her suffering, but simply said, I'm at peace. I've made my vow, I've changed my heart, now do what you want. And if you choose to give me a son, I refuse to make an idol out of him. It's finally safe for to have this thing she so desperately wanted. Now, some of you may be sitting there thinking, wow, <laughs> Hannah was one impressive woman. 
I mean, she loved God so much and trusted God so much. She was freed from the idle systems of a culture, but that's her. I don't have that kind of power. I don't think I could ever be like her. Yes, you can. Because you have something she didn't have. And she kind of points to it, hints at it in her next prayer. Just want you to have a listen to what she says, what she prays. Because in this prayer, thirdly and finally, we get to see the secret of this remarkable change in her heart. Chapter 2, verse 1. Then Hannah prayed. And she said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors, they're broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and makes them inherit a throne of honor. It's like from beginning to end, This press celebrates the incredible ability of God to reverse things, to transform things, to completely turn things around. Verse 4, God breaks the bows of the warriors and arms those who stumbled with strength. Verse 5, God fills the hungry and leaves the full empty. He causes the barren to be fertile and the fertile to become forlorn. And in verse 8, God raises the poor and needy from the ash heap. Just to explain, back then, everyone's rubbish was taken outside the city walls and burnt. And the poorest of the poor were forced to rummage around for food in the rubbish heap, in the ash heap. And yet, we read here that God lifts the poorest of the poor from the ash heap and seats them high up with the princes. You're thinking, well, that's slightly interesting, but so what? So everything. Remember how centuries later, when Jesus was led outside the city walls, outside the gates of Jerusalem, to be crucified in the place literally reserved for all the rubbish. As Jesus was going out in disgrace and in shame and in weakness, everybody said, look, that can't be the Messiah. I mean, the Messiah wouldn't be weak. The Messiah wouldn't be disgraced like that. That that can't be the Messiah. Do you know what their problem was? They failed to grasp the all-important lesson from stories like Hannah's, that God is in the habit 
of completely turning things around. The reason why we today can be raised from our ash heap and seated in the place of honour in heavenly places is because Jesus himself experienced the reversal that Hannah was alluding to here. Jesus went deeper than the ash heap. He went into the ash heap. He not only was crucified in the ash heap, he experienced the disgrace and the shame and the punishment and the pain and the divine justice that we deserve. But he was then raised victorious. And right now he is seated at the right hand of the Father in glory. And because our sins and our disgrace and our shame were put on him through his death and his resurrection, we now can be saved. Now, of course, Hannah didn't know this. Hannah didn't know exactly how God was going to use her suffering to bring about salvation. I've no idea whether she even lived long enough to understand this at all. Maybe the very end of her life, as she looked back at it all and reflected, she began to see what was going on with Samuel. Maybe then she said, oh, that's why I had to suffer. I'm beginning to see why I had to sacrifice. But maybe she didn't know. Maybe she never realized. Ultimately, she didn't care. She just trusted God. But we today have a huge advantage over Hannah. We have something she didn't have. We have the cross. On the cross, we see that God brings life out of death. And through suffering, his own suffering, he brings about all kinds of life in the world. Therefore, you can trust him right now. And if you're faithful to him, and don't give up on him, but continue to pray and put God in the center, even during your suffering, like with Hannah, God has the power to turn it around, to transform it for good for you and for others. But even if he doesn't turn things around for you anytime soon, whether or not you ever get the thing you've set your heart on, If you look to Jesus, you get to experience the greatest reversal of all. Keep looking for meaning, keep looking for worth, keep looking for identity, keep looking for security from how culture holds it out as the answer, it results in death. Look to Jesus, you get life. Let me close this out by reading to you how Paul puts it in Ephesians 2. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, 
made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus.